Welcome to the Getting Off Course podcast. I'm your host, Josh Waldron. I want to start by apologizing for the long delay between episodes. I've driven about 1,400 miles over the last two weeks, but it's time to pick up where I left off. Before we jump in, I want to give a shout out to Kevin Root. Kevin helped me power through two hours of my 20 hours on the road. So I wanted to recognize his grit, determination, dedication. You get the idea. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Today, I'm excited to welcome Tucker Booth to the show. Tucker is a professional entertainer, an award-winning battle rapper, a diehard Los Angeles Rams fan, and the host of the Rappers Don't Golf podcast. In this interview, we're going to cover some fun topics, and I hope you'll join us for the ride. Tucker, thanks for joining me today. Hey, what's up, Josh? Pleasure to be here. Nice to see your face. We've done interviews before for your par three near me, but it's nice to actually see what you look like. Uh, and you, you seem like a very handsome man. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Well, I appreciate all the um, unsolicited compliments. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Let's start by talking about golf. When did you first pick up a club? Honestly, my first time I seriously picked up a club with any sort of intent to swing it was about 29 years of age. I'm 42 now. My dad, when I was a kid, I grew up initially in Portland, Oregon, and we lived right by a great public golf course, uh, the Westmoreland Golf Course. Uh, Peter Jacobson, famous Portland golfer, uh, swears by it. But my dad had said, hey, you know, Tucker, would you like golf lessons? And I go, why would I want to play that fat old man sport? And he kind of slouched and moped away. And then I became a fatter, older man and got into golf and picked up a club and really wished I'd taken my dad up when I was 10, because uh, it has been pretty brutal ever since. <laughs> I think some of my attitudes towards golf were pretty similar when I was younger, so I can appreciate that. Any highlights that you can remember from that first round of golf? Well, let's see. I, the very first time I remember ever getting out was at the lakes at El Segundo, which is near me in the South Bay of L.A., it is no longer around. It is right now being turned into a top golf and they are nearly finished building it. So this will be the first top golf in our area. But back when it was still the lakes at El Segundo, I went out on this little nine hole, mostly par three course. It's got two fours on it, but mostly threes. And I think the highlights were just seeing the ball actually go in the air straight at all, because I imagine most golfers that are hacks can attest a lot of swinging at air before you even get one to go the way you want it to go at all. I was lucky enough, like most very beginner amateurs, to get a couple that did what I wanted them to do, at least in theory. And those couple good swings, couple good drives down the fairway on the fours, that was pretty much it for that round. I probably only had three or four good swings. But those swings alone, and they were usually drives, got me excited just to see the ball flying so high and far uh, that even if it wasn't dead straight, I was I was hooked. And, and then, like most people will say, that's what keeps you coming back were just those couple good drives. I mean, I couldn't hit any putts. I wasn't hitting any chips. It was pretty much a you know shit show round otherwise. But, yeah, I mean, that was it. That was the moment right there. And, uh, and I'd say – that kept me coming back long enough to to realize my place in the game, which is being the playing partner that you can always outplay. <laughs> hey, everyone has their role. And, you know, 
<laughs> there is nothing like hitting a good shot, right? Like just even if you're one for 10, just seeing that ball fly, it's a pretty incredible feeling. Yeah, I mean, I, I think most of us, like, right, it's just the concept that I have the power and the coordination to launch this thing like a missile. I mean, that's about it, right? I mean, it's that, that feeling of most of us will never hit a baseball that's being pitched at any great speed at all with any consistency. We'll never hit a home run. But I think the big bomb drive is the closest thing most of us will ever experience to that sensation of hitting a homer. And yeah, that's that's what amateurs uh, can hope for is, is that on occasion and maybe hitting a couple putts here and there. But that's that's what excites me about the game personally. So Top Golf's coming in near you. Have you tried Top Golf yet? No. And actually, I think it looks very attractive. I, there's been a lot of debate in the El Segundo community about whether or not they wanted a Top Golf versus a, a public muni. But I would say personally, it's definitely attractive to me. And to my son, who is 12, who um, is a much better golfer than I am. But we, we look at this as a way not only for us to go and have fun trying you know, these unique games and you know golf-themed stuff that they've got there, but it's attractive to his friends. So uh, I would say that's what Top Golf is great for, is attracting uh, younger people, uh, people that probably would not want to spend four to six hours playing a round of golf for real, but they're, they're willing to go there because it has a festive atmosphere. It's got food and drinks. It's got other fun games inside. It's kind of like a Dave and Buster's with a, you know, driving range in the back. So yeah, I think, you know, on that level, it's definitely uh, appealing to us. Yeah. You guys will enjoy it. It is a neat setup. And I think that we're going to just see top golf and their competitors more and more places. Yeah. I know from our previous conversations and even your intro here that you play mostly par three courses. Give our listeners the case for playing a short course. I mean, basically it's time and most people can relate. If it's a huge 18 hole with fours and fives at the shortest, you're playing four to five hours. And you know, if it's a long day and every, everybody's dragging, it can be up to six, seven hours to go play. I have a good friend who goes out with his sons every weekend and he tells me this is a whole day. You have to expect to go early and be there till dark. So most of us, it's just a timing issue uh, and a money issue too. I mean, the bigger courses are more expensive and, you know, I live in LA where everything's expensive to begin with, but I mean, we live near the Trump course in Palos Verdes and um, you know, the Pal Los Verdes golf course, which is a public, you know, these are super expensive even for public. So I think obviously the money's an advantage. Uh, also, I think, again, having a really crappy swing, it gives you a shot of hitting a green in regulation yeah. pretty much every time. And that's what we, you know, bad amateurs are working on is just feeling like we can hit any greens in regulation at all. And, you know, we'll go one deeper, you know, Tiger, whoever will tell you, the short game is what's winning them all these matches and in tournaments. You know, the greatest in the game swear by the fact that it's their irons and their their putters that that do most of the of the winning. So I think for me, knowing that my driver is indeed a kryptonite for me, I'd prefer to have the the irons in hand and keep working on getting better with them. So let's shift gears here. I know that you're um you're a really creative person. 
Where do you think that creativity originated? Well, the short answer is God. The longer answer is uh, my folks were very uh, performance-minded people. Before I was even born, my mom and dad were in theater. They had done all kinds of uh, Gilbert and Sullivan operas when they were young and married together. They were singing waiters in a German restaurant. Mom plays piano and sings. Dad plays flute and harmonica still. And when I was born, this was a musical and entertainment-minded family. We, I will always remember the, the Christmases and the Thanksgivings and family gatherings. After the food, we would gather around this player piano that my great-grandmother had given to my mom. And it had all the rolls, so you could play the pedals, and it had all of these rolls of classic music, mostly show tunes and you know, kind of jazz standards and, and classical music. But we'd all stand around this player piano, the entire family, and sing these classic songs together. And that was from the time I was a baby. So by the time Tucker's three, four, five, I can sing and dance and perform for people. And, and they always ask me to at all these family get-togethers. So I really was, I never, uh, it wasn't that my parents forced me to, but I, I never knew anything but. I always loved it. I always wanted to do it. And I, as I got older, I realized what I really loved doing was entertaining. I love to be in front of folks and show my talents and hopefully make them feel good or feel whatever the emotion was I was going for with the performance. But I love to entertain. Uh, I sing, I play guitar, I play piano. Uh, I, I'd done stand-up comedy ever since I was a little kid. I was entering comedy contests when I was a boy. Uh, now, nowadays I do acting, uh, not just uh acting on camera, which I do as well, but also voice acting. And, um, and I'm writing, I'm a writer, I'm writing a couple books. So I think it was just this sense of, I loved all these different ways to entertain and to use my creative thinking and talents, uh, to hopefully inspire others. And so that's where a lot of that came from is surely from mom and dad and, and the family. It's amazing how much your childhood does have a role on your development as a human being, whether it's someone who kind of gets into the world of sports or in the world of music or whatever it is, or even some of the troubles that people have in life because of parents who didn't invest in them. So your story is pretty cool. Like I'm just imagining you guys standing around after Thanksgiving or Christmas meal. That's those are pretty cool memories. They're cherished moments, you know, and, and, I have to say, I I feel like, without sounding too sappy, that some of these past family members that have passed on are still with me when I'm singing and, and performing for people. I, I, I can feel their spirit with me. And uh, so, yeah, it's very similar, I'm sure, to people that grew up in golf and had mentors in, in that world. That, uh, that That's how it feels. It feels like I'm connected to a, a lot of people, uh, past and present. Uh, by by just doing it as a practice at all. Yeah, it's really powerful. All right, well, it's too late for me and most of my listeners to launch a career as a battle rapper. I wanted you to give us a... Oh, don't say that. It's never too late. All right, well, maybe I'll reevaluate after the podcast. I want you to give us a glimpse into that world. When you're new to golf, like you can get lessons to improve your skills. But when you start to venture into the world of rap or hip hop, 
How do you get your reps? Good question. I love it. I've never been asked this in all the times I've been interviewed about it. So I'll, I'll tell you how I got going with it. I, I had already been singing in bands as a teenager. And in high school and junior high, my best bud and I had started a band. And we wanted to emulate all these 90s jam bands and rock bands that we loved. And a lot of the jamming, when we would get together at practice, would turn into solos for everyone. So first the guitar would shred a solo, and then the bass guy would break it down, and then the drummer would do his thing. But what does the singer guy do as a solo? And that's what I always was. The singer guy, when they they said, I'll take it, Tucker, I just start kind of freestyling off the top of the head. And it started with kind of freestyle singing, where I would kind of sing and rhyme and just kind of be real wild with it. And then I started, uh, I'd been listening to a lot of the 90s hip hop as well and was in, you know influenced by a lot of the great early classic stuff. So I started trying to freestyle rap while they kind of laid down a funky groove for me. And over time, those reps really started to help me improve at tying together rhymes very quickly while syncing them up with a beat. Because again, to rap, it's not just whether you can rap with no beat, it's can you can you sync it up to whatever beat? So yeah, I'd, I'd tell the drummer, you know, make it hard, you know, you know, give me a fast one, give me a slow one. You know, I was trying to learn how to tailor it to different rhythms. I got to college, I was in a band where we kind of featured it more, where it became kind of like a parlor trick in the set where I would really rip up freestyle for 10 minutes and show how much I how much I could do. Um, and then I also started getting to be friends with rapper guys in my dorm. I went to this uh, Southern Illinois University. Uh, we moved from Oregon in, in, when I was 10 to the St. Louis, Missouri area. And a lot of these rapper guys not only were schooling me in, in how to do it better, but, but uh, freestyling with me one-on-one. Mm. So talk about reps. I mean, better guys than I were putting my feet to the fire. And we weren't just freestyling. They were battling. They were trying to intimidate me into silence so that it was all them all the time. And the only way you could get in was just to step on their lines and jump in there and fight. It was not, Hey, I'm doing funky rhymes. You had to come after them personally and put them in their place to the point where they'd shut up and and give you the, the floor. So I had to learn how to do that through all these wrestling matches with my friends over college and young adulthood and then uh, I was back in the St. Louis area after college and I uh, made a best friend who not only was a great rapper and, and a lyricist in his own right, but he really taught me how to battle and kind of became coach or sensei or whatever, where we would do it all the time. I lived with him all day, every day, and it was putting on lots of different beats, especially difficult beats, beats that he knew were tough for people to rap to, not the easy ones. And learning how to rip those and learning how to uh, take curveballs where he'd throw something totally different at me and then some totally different style at me. And now let's rap over country music and can, can you even do it? You know, can, let's rap on jazz and, you know, can you, can you hold it to that beat? So it, it became kind of this, this game that we love to play and tournaments in, in St. Louis weren't really a thing till the early two thousands when I was just out of school, but these tournaments were in local bars and clubs and they were all in the city and they were definitely not really looking for me and my friend to come a couple of goofy white dudes. We were not the, the, the demographic. Um, but we had already had uh, DJ friends who were playing a lot of these places. So we were tipped off to what was going on. 
and we would come and kind of play party crasher at these things. Um, I think my unique angle with battle rap compared to many of the others I knew was that I already was a rocker and they knew I had all of this rock cred that extended beyond hip hop. So I was not needing to be accepted in the world of hip hop. If anything, I felt like an honorary member on occasion, but definitely kind of an outsider looking in versus the other way. A lot of the other white guys trying to break in were all trying to be the real hip hop and really needed to be accepted by this culture. Uh, I kind of felt like as a rocker, damn the torpedoes. I don't need you. Um, I am who I am. Uh, but I also came in with a lot of humor. Like I said, I'd done comedy. I had a lot of friends that were, that were comedians that were hitting open mics and I would go and do those with them too. So I realized looking like I do. And for those of you who can't see me, everybody always says I look like uh, raps, Nicholas cage. So looking like Nicholas cage at a rap battle, you kind of have to have an angle. And my angle was make them laugh. Um, get my opponent to laugh. That'll show people who's boss. Um, get the audience on my side with humor. Um, and, but also you got to be fierce. They, they weren't, they're not going to allow you to just clown. So it, it had to be this kind of balancing act between tough guy, but funny guy and, uh, and never looking intimidated and, and obviously um, having the gas to not choke out and, and lose the train of thought like a lot of people do. So I guess that's the, the long answer was the reps were the attorneys and these just little amateur battles that would go down on a Tuesday night in the basement of some little reggae club or whatever. And we'd be down there. And over time I got better to the degree where I knew I could pretty much beat just about anybody uh, on a good night and uh, started winning more consistently where after all these tournaments where whether or not I was the superior guy, the promoters were not going to let me win. Finally, the promoters were seeing the value in having a guy like me yeah. on the card. And uh, when I won, I won three in a row. And uh, that, was pretty much when I realized I was good. Um, you know, tournaments kind of ebbed and flowed through the years. But um, when I moved to LA in the late, like t t 2009, 2010, uh, like late aughts, uh, I had friends in St. Louis start calling me going, there's this huge music festival going on. It's like the biggest one in St. Louis every year. And they got a rap battle in their back. And you ought to come, man. I, we think you could win this thing. And that's that tournament's called, called the Slum Fest or the St. Louis Underground Music Festival, uh, which was once a year. It was a huge deal. They had 100 acts on the bill. And then the final event of the night was a freestyle rap battle. Uh, I came for the second one. I wasn't at the first and, and won it. And that was in 2011. Came back, defended one in 2012, and then came back and three-peated in 2013 before finally going down in 2014 in a four-peat attempt. Um, no one has ever won more than this at, at the Slum Fest. Uh, somebody won two, but no one's ever won three. And now the tournament is defunct. So I will go down as the GOAT of Love the Slum it. Fest rap battle. Um, that kind of put me on the map there. Now in St. Louis, they would say that you know whether they want to admit it or not, I'm probably one of the best to have ever done it over a long period of time. So that puts me in the conversation for best ever in town. Uh, I don't think I'm the best ever in St. Louis history, but I, I definitely think I could I could hang with the best. So uh, that's where I got most of my reps. And nowadays I'm semi-retired, but um, never say never. In fact, I've been talking with some producer friends. There may very well be some uh, pitches going out uh, for a potential uh, web series on a comeback. So All stay right. tuned. So, you know, your resume is pretty impressive. You've got the albums that bear your name. You've had your successes in 
freestyle rap competitions. What's what's your proudest moment in like your list of achievements? Wow. There've been a lot of moments that I'm very proud of. I don't want to dodge this question, but I'd say the bigger answer is every time that I achieve a new goal, especially when it's work related, because like most artists, the first question somebody's going to ask you after they ask what you do is they're going to say, is that your real job? And that drives every artist and musician nuts. But the reason why it drives us nuts is because the stereotypical artist and musician don't consistently make money at what they do. Uh, I, I changed that and it took till I was in my mid thirties, but I finally went from being an aspiring artist that was not consistently making money at it to this is my full-time job every single day I'm getting paid to do something or other with my talents in the entertainment world. And over the last you know eight years, I'm making a good living doing this. I, I'm able to pay my mortgage and my bills and, and feed my family from singing, guitar, rapping, voice acting, uh, being on film, um, you know, yeah. whatever, comedy. And I, I guess so my proudest moment is every single time that I get hired to do something new. And I mean that because it never gets old especially because I'm not doing any one thing all the time. I feel like I'm always doing something new and I got the podcast and I told you I'm writing not just one, but I'm writing like three books right now that are in various states of production. Um, just knowing that I'm getting paid to do that is the proudest moment. You know, I'm, I'm sure it's other people probably say that the time I won the tournament or whatever, and those were proudest moments at that moment. But I'm telling you winning the tournament was, was great for my pride and my ego but what I really loved about winning those tournaments was I got paid cash afterwards. So again, it's getting paid to do this and not just have it be a hobby or whatever most people stereotypically think this life yeah. to be. Yeah, that's a really interesting answer. And I think it's, it's an American luxury to be able to do what you love and to do it well. And when you get paid for it, that, that's really the, the sweet spot. Yeah. Well, and again, nothing wrong with hobbies. I got a lot of friends who love playing guitar and singing, but they know damn well that they don't have the wherewithal to do it as a living. And they've made that concession. And so they know that it's something they do for soul enrichment. And when they've got some free time and when they want to get together with friends and, and blow off some steam, but that's what it's for. You know, maybe they'll go hit an open mic every once in a while to scratch the itch to do live performing, but they know that they don't, have what it takes to, you know, be stoic enough to do it as a living. And, um, I've told the story many times, but I had about my mid thirties really gotten, you know, to that looking in the mirror moment going, I need to figure out how to provide for my family. And this dreaming, this dream of getting a record deal or uh, a script getting green lit or all these other things I was trying to do, it wasn't working. And so I went and, um, humbly applied for a job as front of house management at a restaurant and they were hiring me to be the manager of the front of house. And as I was doing this training program, I started witnessing all of these injustices. There's no other word for it that were going on in this establishment. And on the heels of being trained on how to deal with seeing these things happen in the workplace. I went and reported them and watched my ex superior managers sweep things under the rug, including sexual harassment 
of wow. fellow trainees. And it, it, it put me in this funk where I went, I, this is not me. I don't, I, I this is not yeah. what I'm good at. I don't want to be a slave. I don't want to have to turn my head to this stuff and I don't want to do this. And so I really went back to the drawing board and went, okay, well, how, what is your most marketable skill? Tucker, like pound for pound, what could you command the most money for right now? And I went, music. It really is. It's a, kind of uh, crazy to say, but it is. And I went, well, then I got to figure it out. So I went online and I started typing in all these searches on Google going solo musician, booking, stuff like that. And I found this website called thumbtack.com that is very prevalent now, but back then it was just in its infancy. And basically it's kind of like uh, LinkedIn meets Facebook uh, meets a booking company. Uh, but basically any independent business, not just music, all kinds of businesses can start a profile on there and they're filtering you opportunities to bid on stuff. So they're kind of like your, your agent that goes out and fishes you opportunities. And then you pay a small fee to bid on something and then you get connected with these potential clients and you, you negotiate it from there. But all you're paying for is the connection and everything you negotiate after that goes directly to the business. Um, it didn't take long. I started getting hired, word of mouth, snowball effect from that. But uh, I became the number one solo musician entertainer on Thumbtack from 2012 till 2019 when I finally realized I didn't need Thumbtack as much anymore because I'd already built a big enough word of mouth Rolodex to, to move on on my own. But, uh, you know, I, I'll give it up. That, that was a real turning point for me, again, where it was um, – Mm -hmm. Is this who you are as a, a, a man and as a, a life and as a career, or is this just something that you love to do and you're, you're going to always dream these impossible dreams? And I guess I would say to people, if they are aspiring artists on any level, you can absolutely be a professional at whatever you do and make a good living. It may not be the way you fantasize it in your dreams, but you can do it. And um, there is a way, especially now with the way that the internet's set up. Uh, however, you might have to give up this, you know, fantasy that it's always going to be superstardom. Um, and granted, we could have a whole nother conversation about that. But I think if you want to be a professional, it might even be better to kind of be a little bit more obscure. Uh, if anything, I feel like people that I know that have gotten famous yeah. doesn't seem to last that long. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, a willingness to be flexible on your vision, but kind of be true to yourself at the same time. And then I know... The internet's a game changer and I've used Thumbtack for web design gigs in the past. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty familiar with that platform. It's amazing. If you're willing to do the work and you have the skills, there are tons of opportunities out there. You just kind of got to go grab them. You're absolutely right. Yeah, for sure. When I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking about all these different things that you've had your hands in, even right now. How do you stay focused on a task? Like, do you have a workflow? Do you pick a day? This is book day. And then the next day is music day. Or how do you keep organized? Well, I'm sure my wife will tell you I, I don't stay organized enough. But um, I say every day I have stuff that is now uh, in the planner that I know I have to do. And these are my weekly gigs. Uh, a lot of people hire me um, to do consistent weekly uh performances every week. So I know I have that stuff on, on, on the docket and most of that is singing and guitar. 
I do some music teaching as well privately. Uh, but a lot of it has to do with very little kids. So it's just yet another layer of all of this. Uh, besides being an entertainer that plays for clubs, private events of all kinds, weddings, you name it. Uh, I also have a, a music program specifically for kids and specifically for very young kids called Top Rock. Uh, so I have Top Rock classes going on all the time where parents bring their kids all the way down to infant and toddler and work with me where we're singing and playing instruments together and kind of giving them a very, very early impressionistic music theory kind of class. So I do that. Um, as far as the writing, I, I started writing my, my book, the, the first one I started writing uh, during the shutdown, right at kind of the beginning of the pandemic shutdown. And it was a lifeline that kept me from going crazier than most of us already went at the beginning. Um, so when I started writing it, I was writing every day like it was a job. When I didn't have other work, I would work on it as many hours as possible. But really, from the time I woke up at eight or nine till around five, you know, and tried to, you know, make make it something I forced myself to do all day uh, because it gave me purpose when yeah. there wasn't much else going on. Um, now it's a little different, but I'm, I'm trying to wake up every morning an hour before I typically would. And I'm an early bird. So I usually get up about five and I try and write from five to six when the fam starts getting up and I have to help my son go to school and whatnot. And I try to get an hour in then. And I also try and get an hour in, uh, around dinner time, usually before, after I'm a little bit more of a, a pumpkin, but you know, I mean, to try and get an hour in then too. And, um, you know, just trying to keep at it that way. Now, granted, if, if it's paid work and I am working on a book for someone else, um, that supersedes everything else. And I will work on that again, nine to five, uh, every hour that I don't have something else going on, uh, because the meter's running, you know, once people pay me, I feel like that should be the, the priority. Um, but otherwise if it's just my own creative endeavors, I'm also working on one with my son. Cool. We just try and do it whenever we have free time. And, uh, and try and do it instead of just gawking at screens, which I know we're all working on not doing as much anymore. What do you do when you're feeling not very inspired or you're just tired? Like, how do you kind of reboot yourself? Uh, drugs. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think there's a lot to be said like an athlete because I do train like an athlete, even if I'm not an athlete. Uh, uh, there's a lot to be said for doing it even when you really don't feel like doing it and kind of the grinding metaphor. There are many days I don't want to go to the gym and run. There are many days where I don't want to do anything active at all. Just want to sit around and watch movies. Um, but I try my best to do something every day that involves these creative endeavors. So even if I'm not feeling it, I'll, I'll still find a way to do it. You talk about reps. I put on instrumental hip hop beats and try and freestyle in the living room while I'm playing the Wii or whatever. I mean, I'll, I'll do it. Um, if it's writing, I may have total blockage and just feel like I got nothing to write, but I'll still force myself to write some BS because I know from great writers that I've asked, how do you do it? They say, you have to allow yourself to suck and just, barf it out on the page and no, you're probably not going to save most of it, but the only way you get back to any kind of second wind or, you know, hot pocket of, of good ideas is you kind of have to write a bunch of junk to get it out. 
I, I say it with my son when we're practicing for baseball. You're not going to hit every ball in the cage in warmups, right. but this is why we're in the cage. You yeah. know, you're not going to get every fly ball I hit you when you're trying to catch every ball, but this is why we do it. We get all the junk out before the game and then you, you feel sharper. Um, so I guess that's how I keep doing it. And, and thankfully because I've been so kind of dogged about not giving up on all the different angles that I've been chasing, it, there's always something different. And that kind of keeps me intrigued instead of it getting one dimensional. Like I don't want to sing every day, you know, when I, I can write, I can do that. If it's an acting opportunity, I'll laser in on that. I kind of just pick and choose every day and, and try and just keep doing something uh, to keep the momentum going. Yeah, that's great. You know, I think that's part of the reason why I was drawn to you in the first place. Like I could tell that you just live in a lot of different worlds and you're good with that. Like you're, you're having fun and making the most of different opportunities. You know, I think about baseball too. You know, if you bat 300 in baseball, that's a pretty good average, right? But you're really, you're hitting one out of every three balls, essentially. And that's, that's good enough. That's success. Right. Right. Yeah. I use that metaphor. I I'm coaching little league this year for the first time uh, on a competitive level. I hadn't coached it since they were hitting off the tee, but you know, now my son is 12 and um, I'm going to be coaching this spring. And my big mental paradigm that I really tried to instill with these kids in the fall was mental toughness. And we use the metaphor about, about batting averages. I said the greatest hitters in the pros hit 400 and that's four out of 10. That means they're striking out or, you know, not, not getting on base six times out of 10. That's not even 500 average as far as, you know, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a losing endeavor mentally. If you feel like you have to get a hit every time. However, if you change your, your expectations and you also commit to this logic it will keep you from letting all of the mistakes or the errors or the, the times that you don't get it uh, eating you up mentally and emotionally, which will indeed keep you in slumps. You have to be tough enough mentally to let that go as quick as you can and also to stay optimistic that, that you can get it back the next time or, or at least you have another opportunity and you're excited about the opportunity no matter what. I feel like mental toughness is the key to the lock with just about anything mm -hmm. that's competitive and hard, uh, whether we're talking about doing artistic stuff or, or sport or golf or whatever. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I've said it to these guys, it's more important than how much you practice even is, is doing the mental prep work required to know that your emotions are going to be tested, to know your nerve will be tested, to know that you are going to want to throw a fit. We all do. I, every time I swing a golf club and I don't get what I want, I want to throw the club and throw a screaming fit. I do still, but by channeling that, it gives me my only chance of actually having a decent round. And I've seen it with my tennis game because I've been playing tennis for the last couple of years with my friends. When I finally stopped throwing the racket and being a baby about it and just channeled that energy back into the next opportunity and, and so forth, just like any of these great competitors will tell you, my tennis game took a whole leap. Yeah, it really did, and it and it became an edge for me that I that I would never betray those emotions like that anymore. Uh, while my other friends still are riding the roller coaster with it, so I would say you know that that's definitely been something we've learned uh, as coach and son watching my son play baseball 
is uh, working on that angle of, of, of success, which is just learning how to master our emotions and, and, and stay brave. Yeah. Yeah. Mental toughness can't go wrong there. It's good advice. Right. So I want to end our time together with a 10 question lightning round. Okay. You're a passionate Los Angeles Rams fan. And it makes sense. You know, you lived in St. Louis and then they moved and now you live in Los Angeles. So it all makes sense to me. The first five questions are going to focus on, oh man, we got the hat and everything. I love it. By the way, before we get into this, you were, you were talking loud on Twitter early in the season when they were undefeated. I mean, you were, (laughs) (laughs) they're slowing down a little bit, Tucker. Well, let me just say, first of all, when Times are good. Everybody's always writing big checks with their mouth and their fingers oh, yeah. online. Me too. Uh, I I will say it's been a it's been a rough November. No no win November for the Rams. Three games in a row that they definitely got beat up on both sides of the ball. But I still have a lot of optimism about this year. I will say also the absence online is not just because they've been getting their butts whipped, but I just haven't been on Twitter as much lately. Um, kind of doing a little bit of a detox yeah. of being fine as much as I have been. I kind of go beast mode every time I'm on it. And then people go, where the hell did you go, man? And I, I, I'm taking breaks. I'm taking seven, eight days off at a time now, and it's it's been helping. Good. But to, back to the Rams. I think there's a lot of growing pains, and a lot of growing pains have to do with a lot of turnover on the team. You know, obviously the big position at quarterback and the new quarterback learning a, a new system. Um, and Stafford did a decent job early and he's been tested lately. The defense is a different defense than it's been the last few years. And especially since last year when it was the number one defense in the NFL, we lost a lot of great guys, you know, Troy Hill, JJ, the third, um, you know, we've we've lost some dudes and, and of course injury, which happens every year. And there's been injury on both sides of the ball that have been significant. Um, specifically thinking of Sebastian, uh, Joseph day on defense was a great lineman for us and disappeared. Uh, with a with a uh, bad injury and Robert Woods, the great wide receiver who's out for the year, yeah. uh, those are hard to make up. Um, but beyond making excuses, I still feel pretty optimistic. It's seven and four with a ninety one percent chance, odds wise, to make the playoffs. I feel like there's going to be you know ups and downs in a year. I still do trust in our coach, even though I know he's not flawless or blameless. And uh, I, I highly anticipate that the Rams, like always, will be underrated going into the playoffs and will be a matchup nobody's really looking forward to uh, when they get there. All right, so let's get to these first five lightning round questions that are NFL Rams related, and then we'll do five more. Okay. The only credit I'm going to give to the Rams is I, I do like their jerseys. They got, they got sweet jerseys. All right, so your beloved Rams are now seven and four. What do you think the Rams record will be at the end of the season? 13 and four. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I would be really happy if it was somewhere around 11 and six, Uh, even 10 and seven, because I know we got the extra game now. 10 and seven would be good. Uh, I don't think they're going to be the number one seed, and I I doubt they're going to win the NFC West since the Cardinals have been playing so great this year. Uh, however, I don't think it's out of question that they can make a run at it, but I would say, yeah, 11 and six and coming in as the fourth out of fourth seed in the wild card. So they got the home game hosting it in LA at SoFi instead of having to be on the road, that'd be great. 
really, really praying that we don't have to play the Niners right away. That would be nice. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I just looked at the lineups this morning. The virtual matchups right now would put uh, Rams playing the Cowboys in Dallas if it were to start right now. I always feel like they play pretty well against the Cowboys. Bring it. I'd be very happy with that matchup. Most valuable player on the Rams right now. I mean, I don't think you can look any further than Matthew Stafford. Uh, as, as he goes, we go. And um, if you want to flip it, obviously Aaron Donald or Jalen Ramsey are just, you know, generational talents on defense. Uh, also picking up Von Miller was pretty awesome too. But yeah, even as awesome as Jalen Ramsey and Aaron Donald are today on defense, I mean, a lot of people think Aaron Donald's the best player in football, period. Uh, I would still say it's it's got to be Matthew Stafford because all of it's on his shoulders now, especially now that we're down a couple offensive weapons. He's going to have to be significantly better than Jared Goff in the playoffs because, again, no one cares about the season. All they ever want to bag on Stafford for is no wins in the playoffs. So this is why the Rams you know, gave up draft picks and gave, rolled out the red carpet for him and and I, I think I think he's going to do good. I, I think he's even in the losses. I don't think this has been all on Stafford. Um, and I got a lot of confidence that I think if he gets into these big opportunities, he'll definitely play better than Goff did. So I doubt that I'll ever get to visit SoFi. Describe the experience to us. Wow, you know, architecturally, and my son and I got a tour before the season started. My parents got me a birthday gift which was a, a tour of the entire place so we got the, the tour we got to be in the locker rooms and go down on the field and see all the baller suites and stuff architecturally it's like frank lloyd wright designed a football stadium it's it's just genius architecture it's hard to explain in its entirety but obviously if you've seen it on television there is an oculus screen that goes around the entire ceiling of the stadium that can be seen in HD from everywhere, any position in the stadium, you can see it brightly in front of you. That's amazing. The roof has over 70 million LED lights on the roof. Wow. So not only can it put on the most bitchin' light show of all time, but it can actually show you the game on the roof while it's being played. People are flying over LA and seeing highlights of the game while they're flying. And inside, uh, not that different from a lot of other stadiums, except that the roof is pretty cool. It is enclosed, but it's it's uh, environmentally conscientious, and I, they could describe it better than I. But basically, when it's hot, it cools it down. When it's cool, it warms it up. Mm. And um, they've used a lot of the natural landscape around the stadium in Inglewood to create a structure for this building that's not just retrofitted for an earthquake, but is arguably the safest building in town if there were an earthquake. They've dug down into the earth, fortified this so that people would probably be brought there if there was a catastrophic earthquake. I think for all those reasons, it's obviously the greatest stadium in the NFL, and not just because it's $3 billion more than Dallas's. I mean, I'm sure before this, Dallas Stadium seemed like the greatest thing in, in the NFL, it's like some Flintstone stuff compared to this now. I mean, it really feels completely outdated uh, compared to so five. Wow. How much money are you willing to wager on the Rams winning the Super Bowl this year? None. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Not just because I don't bet. 
I've had a lot of friends try and draw me into this. I, I learned my lesson with betting back in high school when it was the Buffalo Bills in four straight Super Bowls, and I bet on them in the, the three following the first loss. Oh, they can't lose again. <laughs> okay, well, it's the third time. They can't lose again. Oh, it's the fourth time. They can't lose again. I learned it right then, and I was betting the high school bully who beat me up when I didn't bring the money in the next day. So I, I learned early, and I'm, and I'm grateful for that. Um Okay, virtually speaking, hypothetically, how much money would I wager? I still think it's worth a bet if you're a betting person, and mainly because now that the odds are long, uh, you know, early in the year, Rams were what second or third most likely by the odds to win. I'm sure those odds have gone down. I haven't looked at them, but I'm guessing it's probably sixth or seventh odds right now out of all these teams. Uh, with that in mind, you know, drop a couple hundred bucks on the Rams to win the Super Bowl, and you may end up winning twenty grand. Uh, you know, so forth. So, you know, again, not a huge fan of gambling, but if you were a gambler, I, I still think it's it's a pretty decent bet. Yeah. Is there another NFL team that you secretly like? Boy, that's a good question. Yeah, when the Rams are out, is there anybody else I pull for at all? Yeah, it's, it's probably blasphemous to say this, but I always had a soft spot for the Seahawks, mainly because my wife's a, a USC alum. Pete Carroll, obviously a great Trojans champion coach I always kind of pulled a little bit for Pete and and I was never the biggest Russell Wilson fan although I don't have anything against him but I loved Marshawn Lynch always thought he was fun uh so if the Rams were out I would kind of loosely pull for the Seahawks but not really and you know as I'm getting older I don't even really care about the other teams anymore I used to try and still care pull for somebody in the game when my team was out not anymore um I still may watch the Super Bowl over my shoulder at a party, but last year, I hate Tom Brady. You know, whenever Tom Brady's in the Super Bowl, we stop, we stop paying attention. You know, and I barely watched any of that game. And and you know, I and again as a Rams fan, we'll never forget Spygate. We'll never forget Tom. We will never forget. And so, yeah, I mean, once once we're out, I'm, I'm moving on to something else. All right, five more questions. These ones are a little bit more random. Okay. So you love responding to movie threads on Twitter. What's your favorite movie? Gosh, I, I, it's going to sound like a dodge, but I don't even know if I really have one. Okay, I'll tell you what I think the greatest film is that's ever been made, in my opinion. I would go with There Will Be Blood by Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Daniel Day-Lewis. I think Daniel Day-Lewis is the greatest actor of the last 50 years, in my opinion. Just about anything he's ever been in is a masterpiece. He doesn't really do anything but great film. Um, there Will Be Blood feels like kind of a modern-day Orson Welles or something. Um, just phenomenal acting. If you haven't seen it, it's epic. Yeah. And he's not the only thing great about it. Paul Dano is great in it. Uh, but, you know, I guess I would say in general, I don't know if I have one favorite film. I definitely have favorite directors or producers or whatnot. I would say Paul Thomas Anderson's great. Love David Lynch. Always been a humongous David Lynch fan. Just anything he puts out, I'm always intrigued by. Um, thinking of some other ones. Um, Quentin Tarantino is always fun. Uh, I would say he's kind of more movies versus film, like kind of mindful popcorn exploitation stuff, but I enjoy it. It's always very entertaining. And, um, you know, I think of a few more. Uh, Wes Anderson in a lot of the movies he's made, I think are really great film. But um, I would say for me, I'm a snob. I'm a huge snob. 
And uh, I'm actually going to be doing more on the podcast with movies going forward. But for it to be considered great at all, even good, for me personally, it can't be very formulaic. Mm -hmm. Or if they're doing formula, it's got to be some new twist on formula that makes me appreciate and respect the way that they flipped it. If I know how this movie's going to end when it starts, I already am docking it two stars out of five. And, and you're going straight down from there. It cannot be great if I've seen it before. Um, so that's a tough bar for most people to clear, especially in this culture where, you know, the only film that's getting greenlit, it's got to be Marvel number 25 or whatever, you know, it's hard to do. Uh, it's also why my son always thinks I'm such a killjoy when he wants to go see the new Avengers or whatever. But, um, yeah, I'd say it's gotta be something truly unique and, and wonderful. A recent one I just saw, I'll give props. I hadn't seen it yet. Uh, but was the one that won best picture last year, Minari. Great, great film. Really, really great film. That's probably the greatest film I've seen lately. I haven't seen it yet, so it'll be on my radar now. Yes. Give me one place that I need to experience if I visit St. Louis. Wow. Well, most people probably tell you the arch. I'll go one deeper than, than the arch. It's fun to stand underneath it and look up. I don't know that you need to go all the way up in the elevator and look out. Not as great a view, but it is a pretty impressive view looking straight up from underneath the arch and being down by the Mississippi River and just that kind of that whole vibe of, of that of that spot. For most St. Louisans, they would say that you would need to go to a Cardinals game at Bush Stadium and experience that because that is the whole community coming together for that. Everybody in St. Louis bleeds Cardinal blood. And then if you're going to a part of town, the University City Loop near Washington University called The Loop in St. Louis is not only one of the more impressive parts of town, but nowadays since I moved away, it's become so gentrified that it's become this humongous kind of thriving uh, center of not just art, but also now uh, culture. Uh, so I would say definitely check out the loop. If you're going to do anything food related, there's only one place that really matters. And that's Emo's pizza. You got to get the Emo's pizza on the thin crust with that Provel cheese. Definitely got to hit up the Emo's and they're the, uh, the city that created toasted ravioli. I don't know if anybody knew this. St. Louis is the toasted Rav center of the universe. So, I don't love toasted rab, but if you're going to eat it, you better eat it there. What's the best part about living in California? Obviously, the weather is unparalleled, especially where I live. You know, I'm in Redondo Beach, which is L.A. County, right near the airport. Every day of the year, it's above average. On the coldest day here, anybody who lives in a place that's truly cold will laugh that anybody here thinks yeah. it's cold. And, uh, and not just the weather. I know that people get a bad rap stereotypically, especially nowadays with the whole political climate as it is and California being kind of on the wacky polarized leftist side of the political spectrum. But most people I know here don't fit that stereotype. Uh, if anything, even in LA, which people consider to be this dominantly liberal Mecca, most people I know are pretty purple. They're not really red. They're not really blue. They're pretty much purple. And most people I know are pretty tolerant and, uh, and pretty, pretty nice. Again, I think there's a, a stereotype that all LA people are a-holes and all into themselves and their looks and their cars and their this and then that. And there are people like that here, but most people I know are, are sweet, tolerant, fairly open-minded people. And they're also usually creative types. 
and that's why we all move here. Most people in LA aren't, aren't natives, they're transplants. So I think one of the cool parts is, is that it's kind of this true melting pot or this virtual bus depot of people that have all found their way to this one spot. And we came here for the weather, but we came here for the opportunity creatively and financially because it is one of the few places in the United States or on this planet where you can actually make a good living in the creative arts. So that's got to be one of the great reasons to come. Yeah, I know the media likes to create storylines, you know, to all those wacky liberals in California and all those uneducated people in whatever southern state you pick. But it's never that simple. So that's a good plug from you there. Well, and, and you know what? I'll just be honest. I don't even have a problem saying it. Most of us don't like our governor. Uh, most of us, even the Democrats. So, Gav, if you're listening, we don't like you very much. You got a lot to prove. Get on it. All right. Last question for you. What's the last album you listened to? Okay. Well, I will say that a lot of the stuff that I that I do check out is uh, from the rock and roll world these days. I'm not as hip to the new mm-hmm. rap as I used to be. Rock and roll stuff, there's been a lot of great releases, especially over this last year and a half. Uh, I think the shutdown for all of the things that it was not great for, it enabled a lot of musicians to get back in the studio if, as long as they were motivated to and to get going again. Um, I, I just recently re-listened to the album that I recorded during the shutdown. I didn't mention that. My buddy and I worked virtually between St. Louis and LA on an album called Sociopaths, A Comedy. And it is a work in progress, but it's out there. If you want to look it up on YouTube, just type in Tucker Booth Sociopaths album and it comes up. But uh, as far as other people, uh, I'm really enjoying a band called Dirty Honey. They're a rock band from L.A. that's gained a lot of steam around here. They're definitely pretty ubiquitous on the radio and otherwise. But Dirty Honey is kind of this boss of all classic rock sounds. But it still kind of seems to have a freshness to it, like like great kind of classic sounded rock does. I really dig them. Um, some of these older rockers are, are coming back around with stuff. Uh, but I'll go ahead and say it. Bob Dylan's most recent album, and Bob Dylan is 79 now, or no, I guess he just turned 80. He wrote this record and recorded it at 79. Not only is Bob Dylan my favorite singer, songwriter, artist by miles and miles, but this new album is genius. And say what you will about the man if you don't like his music uh, lyrically and musically, I think it's the best album I heard last year for sure. That one's called Rough and Rowdy Ways, Bob Dylan. Definitely check that out. Shout out to Bob Dylan, the man. All right, so you you referenced it previously, and I just want to reference it again for the listeners. You are the host of Rappers Don't Golf with Tucker Booth. You can find it on Spotify. Is there anything else that you'd like to plug? Well, if you're online, the only social media network I'm left on is Twitter. You can follow me there, Tucker Dale Booth, D-A-L-E, Tucker Dale Booth on Twitter. And uh, the Rappers Don't Golf hashtag is on Twitter and other networks. I've got my producer putting it up on on all the other major ones, too. So if you type in the, the hashtag Rappers Don't Golf, a ton of stuff comes up. Um, musically, if you'd like to check out the stuff, I have six of my albums for free download, and you can stream in their entirety as well at Tucker Dale Booth Music 
tucker.bandcamp.com tuckerdalebothmusic.bandcamp.com but i'm on all of them all the different ones if you go to spotify you can find my some of my albums there soundcloud all over youtube and if you want to see the rap battles just go to youtube and type in tucker booth versus or vs period tucker booth versus and all of them come up so that's a, a great spot to check out lots and lots of video content in one spot yeah i've looked up a few of those rap battles they're fun i can feel the adrenaline all right everyone thanks for listening to getting off course be sure to check out gettingoffcourse.com and have a great week peace getting off course is presented by par 3 near me visit par 3 near me.com to find a par three or executive golf course near you.